0: May his soul burn in hell. Just the thought of what he did to me makes me want to take revenge on all men. To snuff them out like he snuffed out no. my happiness. No, sister. That's enough. <laughs> Mathieu, silly little fool you are. You've been rolling your eyes at me ever since you were transferred here. (laughs) You will help me, won't you, doctor? I promise I'll make you very happy. Sister Gertrude. It is a nun's vocation to suffer. Life has always been difficult. I'm sorry, mother. What did you say? Nothing. I agree, Sister Mathieu. I swear on this cross, I'm innocent. Please take Sister Gertrude to her cell. Give her a sedative, Sister Louise. I think Sister Gertrude could freak out any second. Why did you kill Jeannot, Sister? (sighs) This is to the scalpel. (sighs) What's wrong with you this morning? You know what's wrong, Doctor. Okay, so that was audio taken from the trailer for a wackadoo 1979 Italian horror film called Killer Nun. It is a cherished entry in the genre of filmmaking called nunsploitation. Yes, nunsploitation is a thing, just like blacksploitation and Canucksploitation? Exploiting Canadians? I don't know, but it's on Wikipedia. And if you think I'm saying A after that, you're sadly mistaken. Car is about cars. Were cars feeling used enough in modern cinema to issue a protest or receive a exploitation label? nazi exploitation, But don't they deserve to be exploited if they're not gonna get punched in the face? exploitation. And if you think I'm gonna tell you to throw another shrimp in the Barbie, you're sadly mistaken again. Red exploitation is, defi- is defined on Wikipedia as movies exploiting Native Americans. I get that, but red exploitation sounds kind of icky to me. We've also got space, Brit, Christ or Christ, Chris, Christ, exploitation, Goth, Mexi, guess, shark. That's a fairly young one about you know um, sharks. Swim, teen, Turk of Turkish people and Zax, is that right? Which Wikipedia says is an exploitative film about South, South Africa. And of course, the ever-popular Sexploitation, which is my favorite. But man, a lot of people have been and are being exploited by nasty old Hollywood and the film industry the world over. So, non-exploitation films are ones in which nuns are put in dangerous or erotic situations, and other titles besides Killer Nun include The Devils, which I thought was, like, sorry, side unseen, but I've read about it, was a controversial but highly regarded film from the 70s starring Vanessa Redgrave and that hunky Oliver Reed, but apparently it makes nuns look really bad, as well as titles like The School of the Holy Beast, The Sinful Nuns of St. Valentine, and Nude Nuns with Big Guns, which I know would be my personal favorite if I ever saw it. So I watched a little bit of Killer Nun, and it's crazy. Anita Ekberg, who was this gorgeous European screen icon in the early 60s, she's mostly known for starring in Fellini's La Dolce Vita, kind of lowers herself here to play a crazed Sister Gertrude, a hospital nun, who in the little bit that I watched is totally crackers. And in her opening scene, she gets real salty with one of the, hel- the hospital's elderly patients for daring. <laughs> I'm sorry, elder abuse is not funny, <laughs> but... At all, but this movie was so over the top. This the lady, the patient, is soaking her dentures at the communal dining table. So to punish the old bag, Sister Gertrude grabs the dentures out of the glass, ew, and hurls them to the floor, and then stomps the shit out of them with her white nun boots. Like I said, elder abuse, no laughing matter. But the movie is so overacted and ridic- ridiculous that I had to laugh at this crazy bitch doing the dougie on the lady's fake chicklets. Huh, what a bitchy nun. Sister Gertrude in this mess, besides abusive, is also a drug addict, a kingy lesbian, and Gasp, a murderess. Or maybe she's not. There seemed to be kind of a hallucinating and ripping-off-Dario Argento thing going on. Wait, why did I bring the killer nun into this, that movie? That's easy. It's a true story. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. (laughs) Hello, welcome back. I'm your host, Jay Harvey. January 1978, a stylish seaside resort on the Belgian coast. Undercover homicide detectives are on a stakeout in the hotel's restaurant slash bar. Their quarry, two women, dressed to the nines in stylish pantsuits, seated together and enjoying the resort's sumptuous cuisine and fine wines. The cops watched as the women ate and drank, laughed and whispered and seemed to grow closer and more intimate as the evening progressed. Finally, and much to the shock of the detectives, they began embracing, and those embraces turned into open fondling. Kellner, we namen de check new astublieft dan. That means, waiter, we'll check the check now, please, in Dutch. Now, the detectives weren't shocked because the two women were obviously in or about to have a sexual relationship. They were homicide detectives in 1978. Lesbianism wasn't unheard of. And this was Europe, not the repressive and puritanical United States. No, they were shocked by the women's open lust because they knew what these two did for a living. You see, those pantsuits they were wearing, not their normal attire. Mostly, you could find the two of them dressed in habits because they were nuns. Of veteran Belgium's Order of Saint Joseph. Even more shocking, one of the ladies was the Order's mother superior. And wait, did I say homicide detectives? Sure did, because cheating on God with another sapphic sister isn't a crime, but multiple murder is. This is episode 29 Bad Nun, Cecile Bombique and Sister Gottfrieda. Killer Nun is based on this case. Now, I like soap operas. You probably guessed that. Yes, I have watched soap operas since I was a lass. I was raised in the ABC soaps All My Children, One Life to Live, and General Hospital. GH is sadly the only survivor, but I will always and forever honor the memory of Erica Kane from All My Children and Victoria, Lord, Gordon, Riley, Buchanan, Carpenter, Banks, and her many alternate personalities, on One Life to Live. I myself once told Jeannie Francis herself, that's the actress who plays the most famous soap heroine in history, Laura Weber Spencer, of Luke and Laura fame, the story of my dad coming home from work one day to discover me at age seven wearing a dress shirt tied up to my navel, one of my mom's scarves tied around my head in like a 70s pirate style, and crushed soda cans stuck to my feet to simulate high heels, because I was trying to emulate (laughs) Laura's mom, Dr. Leslie Weber, her beach costume outfit, because when she visited the island where Laura had been trapped with her beloved Luke and they were battling the evil Cassidyne family during the Ice Princess storyline, so Leslie Weber wore that and I wanted to wear that too. And we filed that story under How Dad Knew I Was Gay, 1981. And to her credit, Jeannie Francis laughed at the story when I told it. Hopefully was laughing with me. Right. I bring up this soap opera storyline because the true story I'm about to tell you has at its center one of my least favorite storylines on soaps. It's when they have a villain, right? A really good villain who's done some dastardly things, probably switched some babies, drugged some heiresses, and maybe murdered a few people. But the audience likes his or her character or the actor playing them so much, well, we all love a good villain, right? So they want to keep him or her on the show, but they can't do the right thing and do away with the character with a death or a jail term because that's a long game, and they want to keep the audience from changing the channel to the myriad of other crap they could be watching. Now, they usually do this with a microwave-quick redemption arc for the character. Can you guess what it is? A brain tumor. Yes. Most times, it turns out that the bad guy did it because they had a tumor pressing on their cerebral cortex or some bullshit. So it gets diagnosed, they get operated on, and they slowly introduce the character back into polite society. Ugh, it's boring and lazy writing. But the thing is, there's precedence for it. You probably heard of Charles Whitman, who used a sniper rifle to kill 14 people and injure 31 from the clock tower at the University of Texas. That was after he killed his own wife and mother. Whitman had a brain tumor, and there's still controversy over whether or not this ordinary seeming family man suddenly did what he did because of it. What about after being treated for a brain tumor? Well, according to the American Brain Tumor Association's website, brain tumor treatments can cause a number of mood, behavioral, or cognitive symptoms that present or overlap like mental health disorders. If untreated, these side effects can cause significant change in the patient's personality, mood, and behavior. In extreme cases, These changes could lead to situations in which the patient, their caregiver, loved ones, or others are placed at risk. Cecile Bombique, who after taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, you know, the nun ones, took the name Sister Godfrida. She had a brain tumor removed via surgery in her adulthood. And the story is that the sister underwent drastic personality changes afterward. The formerly supposedly super-devout pious nun, who ministered to the sick in a nun-run hospital... She was said to have become a patient abuser, as well as abusive of the nuns she oversaw. It was said that she became super hedonistic and materialistic, and began to live a secret and lavish lifestyle of vacations and fine dining. It was also reported that she became a felonious drug addict, who began ripping off the patients she was supposed to be attending to, to buy drugs, and to keep enjoying the lifestyle to which she'd grown accustomed. And if that wasn't bad enough she eventually confessed that she'd gone from abusing and torturing the patients to murdering some of them. Her motive? She said she did it because they were too noisy at night. Well, well, we all need our beauty sleep, I guess? How many of these people did she kill? Officially, three. But the rumor was she might have taken the lives of 30 patients in total. Oh, and if you'll recall the very first episode of this podcast and its subject, my non-namesake, Donald Harvey, and his tendency to do awful things to the patients with catheters? Well, Sister Gutfrida reportedly used catheters to torture people too. We really gotta vet these people, right? And specifically ask them, will you be using catheters inappropriately on people? Because that's not cool. Back to her motivation. So was Sister Gutfrida's behavior caused by the brain surgery? Or was she just evil? Let's find out. Okay, spoiler alert. We're not actually going to find out because it was never determined one way or the other whether the surgery did cause her mindset or not, but it's still a good story. This episode's source material includes two stories from March 1978, one in Time Magazine called, fittingly, The Nun Story, and one in the Washington Post by John Robinson called Drugs and Death and Home for Elderly. In addition, I used a 1999 newspaper story from British Columbia's The Chilliwack Progress—that's the name of the paper— an interesting paper name by a writer named max haynes it was called lost soul and our old friends murderpedia and wikipedia and i should pause here to note that if you're a very religious person i probably should have said this at the very beginning before the killer nun trailer and me talking about nuns and and inappropriately or especially sensitive to stories about religious people doing evil which there's a shocker (laughs) a kid organized religion has aided us greatly as a society right you might want to skip this one and another note and let me pop your balloon before you get it home and discover it's got a slow leak and it's going to disappoint you anyways. There are conflicting endings reported to this story, and I'm not exactly sure what became of the person at its center, but the deeds were too good to pass up, and there seems to be like a dearth of evil lesbian stories. Like all lesbians seemingly want to do really is hike and love their pets and wonder why the fuck Eve and Villanelle haven't done it yet on Killing Eve. I mean, come on already. So yeah, this story may leave you hanging, but it's worth it, And I brought back Wicked Good Gay at the end, because I needed to kill some time, so anyway. Cecile Bombique came from the little Belgian village of Overmere, and she was doted on by her proud parents, who were devout Christians. Everybody believed she was destined for great things. Cecile herself knew what her destiny was at a very young age, God. At the age of 15, she entered the Holy Order of St. Joseph. Uh, The name of the order was also given as the Apostolic Congregation of St. Joseph in some accounts, but Holy Order of St. Joe is much easier to say. And it was in the nearby town of Wetteren. Wetteren is a mostly, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, again, my pronunciations are terrible, I'm an ugly American, It's a mostly conservative Catholic municipality located in the Belgian province of East Flanders. I don't know about you, but at age 15, it would never have crossed my mind to, vote, to devote myself, body, and soul to Christ. To Janet Jackson's resignation? Absolutely. But to Christ? probs not. Cecile sounds like she was a serious-minded youngster. And she spent her formative years in the cloister, eventually took her vows, and she worked at the Old People's Home, that's what it was called in some of the research, which was a Belgian public hospital ad- adjacent to the cloister. The nuns ran the place, and they ministered to the patients. So, as you know, probably know, nuns take, or oh, if you didn't, nuns take new names when they take their vows to show their devotion and commitment to their Lord and Savior. So, Cecile Bombique eventually became Sister Gottfrieda, who I love saying that, who is described in news accounts as short, cherub faced, and plump. Ugh, gross word. She became known for her commitment, her piety, and her leadership, and she eventually became Mother Superior of the Order. For you heathens, that's like, head bitch in charge for Jesus. And she was in the order for 30 years. And she had a flawless record and eventually became the geriatrics manager at the hospital overseeing the 38-bed geriatrics ward. Until something changed. On January 16th, 1978, three nuns walked into a police station. And that's not the start of a bad, dirty joke. Veteran police were a little surprised by the Wimple trio. Sister Paida, Sister Francisca. And Sister Godlieve. The three, the trio were tentative at first, and they told the cop on duty that they had prayed long and hard about coming forward. They wanted to talk about their mother superior, Sister Godfrida, who was 44 at the time. She wasn't what she portrayed herself to be, they said one can only imagine how gaping this belgian cop's mouth got upon hearing the story these three had to tell about their mother superior accusation after accusation first off sister goodfrida often drank her face off and if that wasn't bad enough i mean for a nun she was a regular user of morphine and cocaine she often traveled to the belgian city of ghent she'd be able to doff her habit and wine and dine herself to excess. And we're not talking about Belgium's version of TGI Fridays. She would be in very expensive restaurants quaffing very expensive wine. For these nuns, the final straw was Mother Superior beginning to regularly whip them for no apparent reason other than her own enjoyment. In fact, she seemed to be really into it. Now, you do hear horror stories about what might have gone on in convents in the past. I mean... There might be a tiny kernel of truth to some of these nunsploitation movies. Google Magdalene Asylum's Island sometime. Yikes. But I'm, sh- I'm sure most of your garden variety nuns are wonderful fountains of blessings and doing good works. I hope. And if there are any true crime fan nuns out there, feel free to write in and tell me to fuck off. But the nun trio's most startling revelation? They save for last. They accused the Mother Superior of being a murderer. She had killed one of the hospital's patients. They claimed an elderly diabetic, 87-year-old Mrs. Maria Vandergunst. The nuns claimed she had purposely given her a fatal overdose of insulin, a la Sunny Van Mulo. They said her motivation was to get a hold of Mrs. Vandergunst's money and jewels to finance her secret, lavish lifestyle. And Mrs. Vandergunst wasn't Sister Grafrida's only victim. They said the nun had killed several others over the last seven years. So this was a serious accusation to make, and the police were floored. It was decided they would put a tail on Sister Gertrida and see what they could find out about the suspect. Which they did, and that's how they came to watch the mother superior getting very, very chummy with her female dining companion, who turned out to be her roommate and fellow nun, Sister Matu. Now, unlike the other nuns who lived in the cloister beside the hospital like most nuns do, well, sisters, well, sisters Gutfrida and bestie sister Matu lived in the nun version of an off-campus apartment together. Together. So the nun was definitely having a secret life with the gourmet dining and the wine and women, but did this mean she was a murderer? And just how was she affording this lifestyle? They began to check into her background as they began a murder investigation for real. And something the accusatory nun girl group had said sparked their attention. They had claimed that Sister Gutfrieda's bad behavior began seven years ago, and she had been a devout and pious servant of God for about 23 years before that. What caused the alleged persona change, they wondered. Well, they discovered that that seven years ago was when the sister had a brain tumor removed, and it was supposedly after this procedure when the trouble started. Sister Gutfrieda seemed to have undergone a serious change in personality, demeanor, ethics, morals, the whole bit. They consulted with some doctors who told them, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, that a personality change can occur as a result of brain surgery. They also discovered that Sister katrina had received morphine to help her with the pain, and that she was now allegedly addicted to the drug and would do anything to get it. And I mean anything. One of the trio of accusing nuns claimed that the sister was also prostituting herself to get the money to buy it illegally. It's bad that the first thing I thought of was that it's going to be super easy for her, if she just wants to serve as clients who have a nun fetish, right? She's already got the outfit and everything. In fact, this one nun who was insistent that Sister Gertrude was sleeping with people for morphine money said that she had overheard the sister tell one of her bedridden patients, one of her elderly bedridden patients, quote, If you pay me well, I will make you happy. And then had claimed to have seen her begin lifting her skirts and going to climb Atop the uh, patient, who must have been either really happy or really alarmed, that is a saucy nun. The accusing nun stopped watching at that point and immediately fled in horror. So it turns out that sister the sister was regularly looting her patients of their money and possessions in order to feed her various habits. They eventually discovered she had stolen close to thirty grand in combined cash and valuables from her elderly patients. Oh, and remember Sister Matu, the lady whose body she was exploring at dinner back at the resort in the beginning? Police discovered the two of them lived in an expensively decorated apartment near the hospital. This was no hovel. It was all luxury. There's no nun hovel with like the twin bed and like the cross on like the spare sparse bedroom wall with nothing else. Maybe something to kneel on to pray. None of that shit. Now, much like at the resort, They frequently dined out together in the best restaurants in Ghent. At other times, vendors and suppliers recalled they had expensive cuts of meat, fresh seafood, and vintage wines delivered to their luxe apartment. Okay, so can I get in on nunnery? Who knew it was like a six-figure-sounding lifestyle? During the investigation, more and more details about Sister Goodfried's exploits came to light. In addition to the other wacky goings-on nuns they spoke to said that their mother superior would frequently sexually proposition them. And this might have just been for sexy reasons, because the other nuns certainly didn't have any money to pair with. These nuns said they had said no thank you, but other nuns in the order they claimed had consented to fool around with Sister Godfrida because to avoid whippings. So murder and sexual assault. Besides her roomy sister Matu, The sister was also reportedly in lesbian relationships with a retired missionary and a local school teacher. Lesbian hospital nuns get so much done in a day, huh? And when she wasn't allegedly propositioning her patients for cash, she was also stealing their pain medications for herself in addition to their money jewelry valuables, which is pretty low. At some point, she had reportedly checked into a private clinic to be treated for the morphine addiction, but that obviously didn't take Probably because Sister Matu, her roommate-slash-girlfriend, was said to have had brought morphine to her in the clinic. So, obviously, she's not going to be getting over her addiction that way, right? So, in the last seven years, to sum it up, Cecile Bombique, a.k.a. Sister Goodfrida, had been a lesbian sadist, a drug addict, and then a murderer. But they only had her fellow nuns' accusations to go on. So it was decided to perform an exhumation autopsy on poor Mrs. Vandergunst. And levels of insulin were found, but she had been a diabetic, so they couldn't quite pin a murder rap on Sister Gertrude with just that. The cops eventually arrested her, uh, the Ghent police arrested her, and charged her with forging prescriptions. And that's when they got the bright idea to just ask her about whether or not she killed anybody. Her answer? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeedy. She went on to say, quote, I sent her to heaven because she was too noisy. She disturbed my sleep. And when they asked her how she had killed Mrs. Vanderguns, she responded with an overdose of insulin. Well, case closed. That was just the beginning of her confessions. She told them that she could only recall events going back one year, but knew that the year before, 1977, she had also murdered Peter Digman, 82, and Leon Mayhofer, 78, with overdoses of insulin in July and August. Apparently, they were keeping her up at night too. In fact, that's what she eventually admitted. She killed them because they were, quote, difficult at night. However, she noted that she did it sweetly, meaning murder. So, okay, I mean, that's cool. Kill away, Cecile. Jesus. Okay, so there wasn't a ton, like I said in the beginning, there wasn't a ton of research on Cecile Bombi, Sister Godfrieda. So I did, con- but I did consult every resource I could. The story from the Chilliwack Progress, which really is the oddest name for a newspaper, claims at this point the cops poured over the hospital's records and figured out that the sister might have murdered as many as 30 patients at the hospital. And in their investigation, they discovered that early in 77, nurses at the hospital in Wetter in Belgium started comparing notes on some weird shit that was going on in the 38-bed geriatric ward. So not only nuns real- thought something was up, so did other nurses at the hospital. I mean, for instance, the death rate had increased dramatically in recent months, with 21 patients suddenly dying in the span of a year, which was a lot for that hospital. Uh Uh-oh. They were also noting patients with signs of mistreatment, paging Donald Harvey, including catheters ripped from the bladders of elderly patients by, quote, persons unknown. Elder abuse is the worst. At least kids can run away, right? So a judge said that not only the bodies of the three patients that Sister Gertrude admitted marking be exhumed and autopsied, but he also, or he or she, also declared that two other possible victims should be dug up, too. And while the police awaited the autopsy reports on those people that they needed before they could add more murder charges, the embarrassed ecclesiastical authorities were reeling over that list of Sister Gertrude's activities that basically flipped a big bird to God, right? Eventually, she was indicted for multiple murder and sentenced to a mental institution to be evaluated to see if she was fit to stand trial. And every story that I read said that she wasn't, and that she remained there for the rest of her life. I'm assuming that's where she died. There is no word on whether or not they were able to verify if it was the brain tumor that had caused her behavioral changes. There were some claims that she had the morphine addiction prior to her brain tumor surgery, and that the surgery removal, the surgery wasn't for removal of a brain tumor, but was treat her addiction. And wow, that's a drastic curbing of substance abuse in Belgium, huh? Is that how they do it. So that had happened the summer before. But you know how when you decide to you want to quit something like overeating or smoking weed or drinking regularly or what have you, and there's always that enabler friend with the eclairs or a bong or an Uber on the way to the bar. Well, that was Sister Matu bringing the morphine to her in the clinic. So thanks, Maddie. And as for how many she actually did kill, all I could find was a quote from Dr. Jean-Paul DeCourt, who was the spokesman for the hospital's governing board. Dr. DeCourt told the press that, quote, it could just as well be 30 people as three. When 21 out of 38 die in one year, it is too much. Well, duh. The doctor also said that a conspiracy of silence had been responsible for Sister Goodfrida being able to get away with all the crazy shit for so long, whether he meant her fellow nuns covered up for her despite her abusing them, or more believably, the archdiocese or whatever it's called in Belgium or whatever, he didn't say. But it wouldn't be too far to travel over to where the Catholic Church was covering up some evil shit now, would it? So yeah, we're assuming Cecile Bombeek, aka Sister Goodfrida, wait, did she go back to being Cecile? When you screw up as a nun, do they defrock you as they would a priest? To habit you? To you? Feel free to write in if you're a nun expert. Anyway, we're assuming that she did die in the insane asylum. So that's the Cecile Bombique story, as far as I know. Admittedly, I have been super lax in... Well, posting episodes, but also super lax and Wicked Good Gay, the segment of Wicked Gay where I highlight an actually, you know, good gay person who has done wonderful things for this planet and to show everyone that we're not all, you know, crazy murderers and catheter rippers out of bladders of old people. So let's welcome back that segment, Wicked Good Gay. And this week's lesbian heroine, Savior Type, is the incredible poet Audre Lorde who is one of the most significant feminist minds of the 20th century. She dedicated both her life and her creative talent to confronting and addressing injustices of racism, sexism, classism, and homophobia. As Wikipedia puts it, uh, who, by the way, she died in 92 at the age of 58, I found a suitable write-up on and stylist, but it probably only scratches the surface. As a self-described black lesbian mother warrior poet, she approached the women's liberation movement with a different history and perspective and perspective to that of her white, straight, middle-class peers, and her writings were hugely influential in shaping ideas about intersectional feminism. One of her quotes, "...there's always someone asking you to underline one piece of yourself, whether it's black, woman, mother, dyke, teacher, etc., because that's the piece they need to key into," she said in 81. "...they want to dismiss everything else. But once you do that, then you've lost." Only by learning to live in harmony with your contradictions can you keep it all afloat. Just like I'm a gay guy, and I'm Irish, and you probably guessed white, and I like craft macaroni and cheese, and true crime, and, um, you know, TV, and, um, foliage, I have so many facets. Jesus. Another quote by Audre, I am defined as other in every group I'm part of. She said that the outsider both strict, the outsider, both strength and weakness, yet without community there is certainly no, liber- no liberation, no future, only the most vulnerable and temporary armistice between me and my oppression. She also described herself as being part of a continuum of women and a concert of voices within herself. And she is credited with co-founding with uh, one Barbara Smith, Kitchen Table, Women of Color Press. It was the first U.S. publisher by, for, and about women of color. And in her lifetime, Sister Lord uh, Audrey was a recipient of many distinguished honors and medals, including being named the New York State Poet Laureate from 91 to 93. And I'd read you one of her poems, but I'm a white dude, and it's probably much better if you read them on your own, because I just embarrassed myself and maybe shouldn't be the guy reading these poems. Well, okay, that's Andre Lord, and that was Wicked Good Gay for this episode. And that's Wicked Gay for this evening. Please tell your friends if you like the podcast. You know, share, share it, or leave a review, or put a star on it. Do what you have to on the podcatcher of your choice. Our theme song is by Gino and the Goons. Additional music by JB cover art by paul chapman audio by the other mr harvey and wicked gay is all over that horrible medium that we call social media under wicked gay pod and you can write me in defense of nuns at wickedgaypod at gmail.com so until next time which is our 30th episode and i gotta think of something special for that something a really good case if you have any ideas write me okay um, yeah, that's right. So, you've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things.